fear can lead you into making a bad deal and it can lead you into turning away from a good deal. Information is key to knowing whether to walk away or not. Most of the time, it's just a matter of getting the finer points of the contract done and having the resilience to stick through those difficult negotiations and to take a chance and say, this is my line and I'm not crossing this line. And if they aren't gonna agree on it, then they're making the decision to walk away. You wanna put them in the position of operating out of fear, not you. Welcome to the Performance Mindset Podcast. And I'm your host, Amy Calandrino, CEO of Beyond Commercial. After a decade of providing expert commercial real estate advice and consultation to the business owners and investors I serve, I wanted to share some of the most inspiring and influential leaders I've met along the way. The goal of this podcast is to share valuable insights from these impactful individuals, as well as business and commercial real estate trends. If you wanna grow, you're tuning in to the right show. Today, I'm excited to have Phil Calandrino, CEO and lead attorney at Forward Law Firm on the show. Forward Law Firm handles both business and commercial real estate law. As you may imagine, I've known Phil for quite some time and very well. In fact, his mentorship and support as a legal and business advisor has been a driving force in my success. I wanted him to be on my podcast from day one, but I committed to never having him on until at least a dozen episodes in. So here we are. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you, Amy. Good to see you. Let's start from the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do, your background, and how you got into business law? Sure. I'm a business attorney and commercial real estate attorney in Orlando, Florida, although we service clients all throughout the state of Florida. I could trace back my decision to become a lawyer until I was about six years old, and I was at a family dinner at my grandparents' house. My uncle was a lawyer. And he met a man in the driveway who gave him a box and a hug and was tearful. And I asked my uncle what was going on. He said, well, I helped this man. He had a problem. And he was you know, from the neighborhood. And he gave me a box of wine. And he was just very grateful for what I did. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, that you know, being a little kid and watching this grown man move to tears over something my uncle did to help him realize that my uncle made a big impact in his life. Fast forward a few years after that, my mother decided to leave her job at the state of Illinois and go into business for herself with the support of my father. Uh, This is in 1977 at a time when it wasn't in vogue to be a small business person. And it was certainly difficult for a woman to be a small business person. So I really respected my mom for doing that and watched her struggle through the trials and tribulations of what it meant to be a small business person. And so as I was nearing the end of high school and deciding I really wanted to become a lawyer and getting ready to go to college. And then I got to law school and thought, okay, what am I going to specialize in? Am I going to do OJ Simpson trial was going on? Am I going to do criminal law? Am I going to do business law, which is kind of what I always wanted to do? I decided to do business law and specifically working for smaller businesses that needed legal help, didn't always have access to legal help, like what my parents did. So that's how I became a lawyer. That's awesome. And of course, I know that story, but not everybody knows that. And that must have been so impactful seeing your uncle get that box of wine and that experience. And from what I understand, that wasn't the only person that he helped solve some problems. And so that was very um, much a part of your growing up. Yes. Yeah. Big impact. I think everybody looks to their parental and close family influences for when they're deciding what they want to do. 
when they grow up. And for me, it was, I had a lot of choices. I had a lot of great role models in my family. So tell me about one of your most memorable entrepreneurial experiences as a kid. So let's see. I remember when uh, I got one of the first, uh, the Apple II computer, and I decided that I was going to go into business. So I worked for a local real estate firm, residential real estate firm, and they used to do lists of their listings. And I guess that's why they call them listings, because they ended up on a list. So in the- <laughs> And they kept it on a typewriter. And we're talking white out, scratched out, typos, the whole thing. And so I I got a gig putting their <laughs> list into a, into a spreadsheet and updating it every week. And I think I earned, I want to say like $12 an hour, roughly, which in 1979, 81, it probably was 81 or 82, I think, uh, was pretty good money. So I, and I loved it and I got me something to do with the computer that, you know, was more than just playing games. So that was my first exposure to the business world. And then my second exposure, although this business didn't actually succeed was in the summer in college, I was going to, instead of getting a regular job, I was going to start a company that did wholesale computer equipment because I used to be really into computers. And then I realized that I just did not have the capital. It was very expensive to advertise in the, in the computer magazines, national computer magazines. But I had gone through the whole process of picking out a logo and researching what it took to start a company and where I might locate this business. And I had all these visions and plans for this being this one day, this huge wholesale computer operation. And it never got off the ground, but that's okay. I learned a lot uh, just going through the process. That's amazing. And I. what about the real estate office? What did they think about this computer? Oh, well, that, to them, it was magical. You know, it was just the magic thing that they could get this taken care of. And I'm sure to me, it seemed like all the money in the world to the to the broker. It probably seemed like a drop in the bucket. And he got to solve a problem that was his uh, assistant's typing away on the computer every or on the typewriter every week when he got nice, clean, formatable documents that he could easily change. I'm sure it was cheap to him, but so it was a win-win. That Those are the best. So we talked a little bit about how you got into business law, but I don't know if you mentioned that it was your, your own firm for the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that entrepreneur journey and then how well, we you sort of start the stage, right? Yeah. I've done, I, you know, growing up, I was sort of entrepreneurial kid and watching my mom be an entrepreneur So, you know, kind of following in her footsteps. Then when I went to law school, I was going to go out to California and be part of the dot-com boom. I graduated from law school in 98. And it was, it just was starting to get a little bit shaky. And the idea of going all the way to California when my parents lived in Florida and my family, most of my family was either in Illinois or Florida. It just, I had no ties to California at all. And I think the you know, it was going to make a really good salary. Like I think the starting salary was 90,000. And then I figured out, which this was 1998. And then I figured out that I would spend all that money. I would come, I would, when I did a little budget for myself, I would be in the whole $1,500 a year. I would spend out $1,500 more a year than I made. Cause that's how expensive it was to live in the financial district in San Francisco at the time. And I just decided I would be missing my family and, and not getting ahead, being part of a giant law firm bill, which is not, did not really fit with my vision of helping small business people. And so I chucked that whole plan and decided to take the Florida bar. 
And that's what I did. And I, at the urging of a professor, I said, what am I going to do? I've missed the hiring season. And she said, you know what? I think you're going to be fine. Go hang your shingle. If you don't make it, you can always go get a job at a law firm. You'll, in the next hiring season, one of the law firms will pick you up, I'm sure. That was 23 years ago. <laughs> so 24 years ago. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it to one of those big firms. I think I'm fine right where I am. <laughs> so you're now forward law firm. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that name? Oh, we've been through a lot of iterations of names, really, as the legal industry has changed. So, you know, in very early on, it was only used the name. Nobody picked a trade name for a law firm. You know, law firms are very kind of stodgy profession, slow to adapt to change. So we started out as calendar, actually Philip K. Calendrino PA. PA stands for Professional Association. If you've ever seen that and wondered, it's the equivalent of a Inc. INC for a law firm. Then we became Calendrino Law Firm. I also had right away though, this this new thing called the internet was out when I hung my shingle. And so I got Florida Business Law as my address. So I was thinking about doing that as the name, but it was just not going to be accepted. Then market conditions changed, you know, people became more adaptable to it. And so we decided to change to Small Business Council. And that didn't work so well because a lot of people would get counsel, C-O-U and S-E-L confused with counsel, C-O-U and C-I-L and get lost and send emails to the wrong place. So we decided we needed to change. So I really thought, sat down and said, well, what makes us different than other law firms? Why, you know, and I want to tie that into the brand. Why are we different? So I came up with the idea that we're more, rather than what a lot of the traditional law firms do is crisis management. And what we focus on is preventing a crisis. So the problem I saw is a lot of clients had dissatisfaction with the legal industry in general because they would feel like they would just basically move from one crisis to the next crisis. And every time they had a crisis, they had to deal with a lawyer who really didn't have good planning. There were, you know, delays, hard to reach the lawyer, you know, difficult to communicate with the lawyer. Lawyer didn't have time for them. The fees were suffocating, <clears throat> and that's because it was crisis management. It was always t- expensive, more expensive to clean up a crisis than it is to prevent a crisis. So in the crash years of 2009 and 10, I was handling a lot of litigation, and I was starting to notice patterns in litigation that here are little, little inflection points where we could have done something had we had a time machine to go back in time. We could have done something to change this, and they never would have had this lawsuit if we had just done this one thing. And then I developed a methodology out of that. And that methodology, that preventive methodology became the cornerstone for the firm. And then we you know, adopted ideas like we would be innovative and efficient and communicative and proficient in what we did. And using project management techniques, we get our drive costs down, we go through budgets with the client, we'd be regular communication, basically on demand, same day, next day communication with the client. So what does that all encompass is a forward-looking law firm. And so I picked the name forward law firm to reflect that. That is amazing. I love it. I love it. And I especially like the logo. It's very forward moving. So let me think, what do you think? So we talked a little bit about your business, your work with business owners and entrepreneurs, but what do you think that business owners struggle to understand the most that you've seen having worked with now at this point, probably well over a thousand, if not thousands? I think that from a legal perspective, from a lawyer's perspective, that the importance of protecting the business from outside threats. 
So a lot of people do it themselves because of limitations on budget or other problems working with other lawyers in the past. I get it. But there are just some things that you can easily do with limitation clauses and contracts, disclaimers and contracts, waivers. There's all kinds of that fine print contractual stuff that you can do in customer relationships, employee relationships, vendor relationships that really make the difference later on for litigation and can say, you know, litigation event can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in bigger companies, millions of dollars in legal fees that can kill a small business, an otherwise thriving small business because of one little mistake. And so it's really the importance of finding and and eliminating as as best as you possibly can mitigating against those events happening using contracts, using insurance, using asset protection techniques. And it's a very hard thing because it's not something even most lawyers would know about. It's something that just really is important to protect that business, have that preventive mindset. Don't think of legal as a crisis management solution. It's not. It's not designed for that. The legal system is not well designed for dealing with things that have happened in the past. So be, you know, really diligent about how you enter into contracts, how you negotiate contracts. Please do not negotiate contracts out of a position of fear of losing the deal. There is always another deal to be had. You can go out there and the and the time and effort that you would have put kind of get out of a bad contract and dealing with a dispute over a bad contract, if you would put that into a positive deal that was the right fit, where you could get the terms and provisions you needed, you could do multiple deals in the same time it took, takes to go through and, and get out of a bad deal. Yeah, that makes a, makes a lot of sense. But I think a lot of people sometimes operate out of a sense of fear if they don't have the information to set their mind at ease that that it will be okay. And, a you know, plan, information and a strategy, a good strategy, followed by a good plan to implement the strategy, followed by the information you need to fill in the blanks in the plan. There's a methodology to it. And really also, you know, we talk about doing these deals out of it. It's not to say that we're killing deals. In fact, quite the opposite. We look very hard for ways and we can actually put deals that look dead together <laughs> again and save deals so that might look dead just by using this methodology. So it's really a fear can lead you into making a bad deal and it can lead you into uh, turning away from a good deal. And so you really need information, like you said, is key to knowing whether to walk away or not. But most of the time, it's just a matter of getting the finer points of the contract done and having the tenacity and the resilience to stick through those difficult negotiations and to take a chance and say, this is my line and I'm not crossing this line. And if they aren't going to agree on it, then it's, you know, they're making the decision to walk away. You want to put them in the, in the position of operating out of fear, not you operating out of fear or doubt. Well, the, you know, now that I'm thinking about what you're saying is so many people operate out of fear, but if they've actually utilized this methodology, you know, many businesses have bumps along the road and, you know, some of the top entrepreneurs have had you know, bumps along the road and having this together actually can give you peace of mind that even if something does go awry, which things, you know, often do that, you you know, expect the unexpected, that you're better off, you know, having done this than not doing anything. And speaking of, do you have any specific success stories without giving anything too specific away? Because I know about attorney client privilege. Right. Most of my success stories have to stay confidential, unfortunately. 
But um, the I would say this is like, think about it. It's just human nature. When we were kids, we were afraid of the dark. Why were we afraid of the dark? Because we didn't know what was in the dark. We couldn't see. We didn't have the information to know. Same thing in a business deal. You just have to, you have to sift through the detail. You have to gather that information. You have to, sometimes you're not going to have perfect information. So you're going to have to make decisions based on gaps in information. But, you know, we, we have to learn to overcome that fear that, you know, or have good alternatives too. That's another way to handle it too, is if you're, especially in commercial real estate, we do, we do this all the time where we want to have alternative deals in play at the same time, because that helps the client overcome doubt. If they have, if they can compare A to B or A to B to C, then it makes it much easier to make a decision as to which deal is the best when you're only dealing with A and then you move and you only deal with B and then you only move and deal with C, then that's where the the sense of urgency and lack of alternatives come into play. Yeah. It's so important not to get fixated. And we coach our clients on that continually, not to get fixated on, on it. And typically the deals that are meant to happen typically will tend to, you know, come together. There's a flow um, to it. When things yeah. are working, they just work. Right. And for the lawyer, for our role in it, we want to guide our, our client. We don't want to get in the way of the transaction, but we want to make sure that the client understands the choices they're making and can make a rational and log- logical decision with our guidance. But ultimately, it's the client's decision. And if if we want to make we want to make compromises that might be in the long term best interest of the client to do the deal, even though the contract isn't great. So you know we have to be open minded and not just get tunnel. Like I think a lot of a lot of law firms will get tunnel vision and only focus and overlawyer that contract and make too many changes to it. So you know sometimes we make very few changes in deals, even though we'd like to make more changes. We know it would kill the deal. And in the big picture of things, the deal, even as it's structured, is better than not doing the deal. So it's a case by case basis. I can't share any specific war stories, however, because. Uh, that's all privileged information. I know, I know. But, you know, it seems to me that what's great about aligning with someone like you is the ability to be business-minded about the contract, about the transaction, about the overall deal, because the cycles, tends to cycles, and, you know, the pendulum will swing in one way or another. So just because maybe the contract's not as favorable, because maybe perhaps it's more of an owner's market, doesn't mean that when the renewal comes up that then at that point, you can shift and maybe at that point, strategically add in a bunch more renewal clauses or, or something like that, because, you know, you've been doing this for 24 years. So I'm sure you've seen all different types of environments and can adjust the way that you're handling something according to that. Yeah. Like you said, it's a pendulum that tends to swing and tends to swing a little bit too far one way. And then it comes. So it's about timing. But also there are plenty of people that rent space or buy space at the top of the market because they make more money out of that space than waiting. So yeah. it's, it's really a, a case-by-case basis. There's no one single path or answer. You have to look at each deal separately. Yeah, that makes and a in lot context. of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if you had to choose one thing, what do you think you're best in the world at? Hmm. <laughs> I think that I'm pretty good at putting myself in the other person's shoes and thinking about what decisions they would make if in that position. And so being predictive about it and then coming up with strategies to prepare for that. So it's the, it's sort of the six moves ahead in chess saying that they have is I think I'm pretty good at playing things out in my head, several moves ahead and planning for it. I've seen that. 
Yes, I, I would agree. <laughs> so is there I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. How do you keep motivated? I find new ways to challenge myself. So, you know, my challenge right now is growing the firm. It's I feel like I've I've done what I need to do to hit my professional goals, to reach the level of expertise that I wanted to reach as a business lawyer. And so the next step now is to mentor other lawyers and grow the firm to create that next generation of people and train them the right way and further this methodology, this vision that I have for being a forward-thinking law firm. Excellent. Do you have any particular books or events that have like inspired you to take this course and also, you know, supplement what you're working on? Inspired? No, I I always, I had the inspiration at a young age from family member role models. So I didn't need inspiration to become an entrepreneur. I always sort of had that ingrained in me, but there are some books that I've read along the way that really helped me put a process to it because I'm very process oriented. I'm also a big baseball fan, as you know. And I think that it's interesting that some of the great baseball players that are chasing records don't talk about their achievement. They talk about their process and they focus on repeating their process at the plate when they're taking an at-bat. They repeat that process. And all they think about is the process at that at that at-bat. And I think that's also what makes for a successful entrepreneur. You're not the entrepreneur doesn't really go from Steve Jobs didn't become, you know, start with the iPhone, but he had a process for inventing things and really perfecting things because he didn't really invent that much as much as he just took other people's inventions and made them better and easier to use. He had a vision. So you need a vision. You need a process and you have to measure your results and you have to be data driven. Um, That's how you become consistently successful. I have a vision right here on my desk by Cameron Harold, which I think is a good starting point for people to get a vision. I like Traction by Gino Wickman as an entrepreneurial operating system to talk about process. Those are the two that most recently come to mind that I've looked at that I really kind of rely on regularly to you know, that I will go back to as a reference to say, okay, our vi- I need to adjust our vision. And I go back and read Cameron's book, or I say, oh, I need to, you know, we have a little hitch in the way we're, you know, we're not hitting goals. What are we doing wrong? I'll go back and look at traction and which is basically a system of annual goal set, multi-year goal setting, boiled down to annual goal setting, boiled down to quarterly goal setting, boiled down to tasks, man- task management for achieving those quarterly goals, boiled down to monthly reviews with employees to make sure that they're on track for goal with weekly staff-wide meetings to make sure you're on goal and daily one-on-ones. That's the basics of the system. That's what we implement at the firm. And it gives us a competitive advantage over other law firms, I hope, who are not listening to this because that's how we are more efficient, process-driven, and consistent in what we deliver to our clients. It is a lot of work to set up though. <laughs> so, but well, it's like I- anything. It's like if you want, if you started the beginning of a, of a litigation case and you had no strategy or plan, you're going to wander around in circles and you're probably going to get beat and you're going to spend a lot of money on it. But if you invest that time in building the infrastructure out, it's the scaffolding for the building. If you, if you didn't have a good foundation, it's an old adage. If you don't have a good foundation, you don't, you can't be surprised when the building falls. So it's really honestly not that hard to set up. What I imagine is even harder is running a business without that in place, because you're going to just be going from one crisis to the next and one, and you're not going to have any kind of uh, confidence or surety in in the decisions you're making because they're not process driven. 
you're standing up at the plate and you don't know how to swing the bat. Yeah, that's very, very true. I utilize a lot of the parts of traction and can't imagine life without it. I've not gotten quite into the granular detail <laughs> as you, you have, but you know, I definitely would not have realized the success without that. So it is a really, really good text. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today? I just think if people are out there listening and they're thinking about growing their business or starting a business or investing in real estate, and they're hesitant to think about gathering information and using that, shining that light in that dark hallway will reveal the right decision and the right path for you. Have a process, have a vision, make sure that you're you're focusing on your vision, have a process to get there. Don't let fear get in the way and just focus on execution. That's great advice. Well, we are so glad that you joined us today. And if people want to get a hold of you, how would they do that? They can get a hold of us at Forward Law Firm, F-O-R-W-A-R-D, lawfirm.com. Can they also find you on LinkedIn? They could find me on LinkedIn, Phil Calandrino, Forward Law Firm. I think my my LinkedIn handle is on the website uh, as well. They can email client-success at forwardlawfirm.com and my team will be there to get them to the right person to help them in the firm. You can find me on uh, all variety of social media, although your best chance of getting someone right away to uh, see it is right through the website. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining us and please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to share with others. Thanks, Amy.